Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Rachel Nederer about hot topics in ophthalmology. Rachel attended the University of Auckland Medical School and completed her ophthalmology vocational training both in Auckland and Hamilton. She did her fellowship at the Moorfield Eye Hospital in London, specialising in uveitis and medical retina. Rachel currently is a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland and works publicly at Auckland City Hospital and privately at Auckland Eye. She is interested in many things, but is committed to decreasing inequity within the community and the provision of eye care. So welcome today, Rachel, and thanks for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. So today we're discussing three hot topics in ophthalmology and we'll consider the management in the current COVID-19 climate. So let's begin with conjunctivitis. So Rachel, conjunctivitis is a manifestation of COVID-19. How does this type of conjunctivitis differ clinically in presentation from other forms of conjunctivitis, or does it? So as you know, conjunctivitis has been seen in about 1% to 3% of patients who are presenting with uh, COVID-19. And the really tricky thing with this is it doesn't have any distinguishing characteristics that are going to show that it's different from you know, your standard adenoviral. So it's possibly a little bit more milder, you know, but you can get mild adenoviral uh, disease. Um, and so the main thing that we're going to need people to do is do really careful screening of the patients that are coming into their clinic for those coronavirus risk factors. And for people who you know have those factors identified, treat them as a possible coronavirus case with all of the precautions because you just it, there's no simple way to tell. So you've said there are no clues. So obviously the, the screening is important. Do we need to swab the eye? And if we do need to swab the eye, how do we do this and with what swab? There has been a study looking at 30 subjects doing PCR from the eye looking at coronavirus. And the only only one of those was positive, and that was the one with conjunctivitis. All of the ones in the absence of conjunctivitis had no coronavirus swab positivity. You can swab the conjunctiva, obviously, for coronavirus in the presence of a conjunctivitis, but really, infectious disease teams are recommending that you do the standard, you know, nasal and throat, you know, swabs instead, rather than swabbing the conjunctiva, because you're going to have a better yield, at, you know, picking up the coronavirus in those cases. So, I mean, the, the conjunctivitis doesn't need any different management. It's self-limiting, you know, for itself. So you can just leave it. You know, there hasn't been any reports of um, keratitis, so, you know, inflammation of the cornea associated with this. I think there was one single report of uveitis, so inflammation within the eye associated with coronavirus. Um, and in that case, you know, the symptoms you'd be looking for that might be more worrying would be that you might get a reduction in vision or you might get a lot of sensitive regions bright light that might prompt further looking at it but those are really really rare and mostly it's just going to resolve on its own. So are there any particular red flags that we should be thinking of or looking for? I think just the standard coronavirus screening questions that everyone is going to be doing but with the um, with the conjunctivitis no it presents just as a standard viral conjunctivitis and so you know it just reinforces how careful we've got to be at screening all the patients that walk in through our doors. And Rachel, as far as clinicians protecting ourselves from contracting COVID-19, 
there was some discussion overseas earlier on about the conjunctiva and tear ducts being a portal of entry to the virus. Mm. So I wonder if you have any comment about this. The first person who raised the alarm about coronavirus was Dr. Wee, sorry, Lee Wen Lang, and he was an ophthalmologist in Wuhan, and he subsequently went on to uh, contract coronavirus himself and pass away from it, and that was due to an asymptomatic glaucoma patient that he caught the disease from. Then following that, there's been uh, another doctor, which was uh, Dr. G. Peng, who became infected while he was fully gowned up, you know, within his PPE, but he didn't have eye protection. And what he noticed was that the absolutely first symptom he developed was the conjunctivitis before he developed any respiratory symptoms whatsoever, and then subsequently developed the respiratory involvement of coronavirus. So... Based on that, it has been postulated that it's possible to catch uh, coronavirus through spreading of respiratory droplets through to the mucous membranes. It's not been proven, but it has been shown for some other viral infections that you can get that spread through you know, the ocular surfaces and then get it systemically um, as a result of that. So I think that, you know, you, we're all trying to socially, you know, to socially distance. If you're in a position where you can socially distance, that's fantastic. But if you are doing anything where there is a risk of droplets being sprayed, you know, towards your face, you must, must have eye protection for it as well, just to give that extra barrier uh, for you. I'd just say one extra thing with that. There have been a few people who've been wearing just the visors only and not the mask. And that doesn't provide very good protection whatsoever. The mask is really important. If you're going to have one or the other, I'd have the mask. Um, and then the, the visor is just an extra. Great. Thank you, Rachel. So we'll move on to our second topic now, a medication topic. So this is one of your passions, um, hydroxychloroquine. So this medication is used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, SLE, and in malaria prophylaxis and treatment. One of its most important side effects involves the eye. Tell us about this. So hydroxychloroquine, as you know, is really widely used, and there is the risk of permanent vision problems with it. And the real issue with it is that the first symptoms um, well, so initially it is asymptomatic, or if you're going to get early symptoms, it might be a paracentral scotoma. So you might get loss of vision in a ring that's occurring outside of your central area of fixation. Um, that can be quite difficult for patients to pick up on themselves. And the changes once they occur are often irreversible changes. So uh, within Auckland, we run a screening program for people with, uh, who are on hydroxychloroquine. And so we see them from the five-year point on with the baseline test done, you know, more locally. So the red flag things here that we should be telling our patients to be aware of and we should be looking for in our clinic when we're seeing these patients? So I guess first thing you need to look at which patients are at increased risk of this. And so the patients who are at increased risk are those who've been treated for more than five years, because at the five-year point, the risk of having uh, toxicity is less than 1%. By 10 years, it reaches 2%, and by 20 years, it's actually at 20%. So it really rapidly escalates between that 10 and that 20-year point. Prior to that, the risk is really quite low. There's an increased risk if you've got a higher dose-to-weight ratio. Um, if the patient has renal disease, you know, as well. Um, if they've got tamoxifen use concurrently with the hydroxychloroquine, and also in people who have pre-existing macular disease. 
both because the pre-existing macular disease can place you at more risk, but also can make it harder to pick up when it comes in early. In terms of the symptoms, the earliest symptom is going to be that paracentral scotoma. So you're going to get that area of kind of darkening, but it's occurring outside of your immediate area of fixation. So people aren't necessarily going to notice a change in their reading vision or their driving. There's just going to be a subtle feeling that things aren't right um, that we might pick up if we test their formal visual field. And then much later in the piece, you're going to get the blur. So you don't want to wait until you've got those symptoms. You really want to identify the patients who are at high risk. And then for everyone else, you want to be screening from five years on. So you've mentioned the screening program in Auckland and five years. So we're referring at what point and what do we tell our patients to expect from their visit with the screening program? Everyone should have a baseline test within one year of starting uh, the hydroxychloroquine. And this needs to include visual acuity and also a fundus examination. And that can be done by their optometrist. It can be done by a confident GP. You know, you just need someone to have a look to say that there's no abnormalities and nothing that raises a flag that you need to be more careful. Then uh, from five years, you refer patients through for screening. And at that point, they come into the hydroxychloroquine screening program and they're seen annually from there on in. If there are risk factors, then it's a good idea to just alert the ophthalmology department early and so that they might, you know, depending on the, the degree of risk factors, they might commence screening early just to decrease that risk of letting anyone slip through the gaps. In terms of what you're going to tell your patients, you know, with this, I think, the visit takes normally about an hour. Uh, we check their vision, we take a photo of the back of the eye, and then they do a visual field test as well. And I find for a lot of patients, the visual field test can be a little bit stressful the first time they do it. And so it's a good idea to let them know what it involves. And so they have their head almost in a little kind of cone uh, thing, and they've got to look right towards the center, and they'll see bright little lights flashing, a little bit like an arcade game, really. And they have to press a button every time they see a bright light flash. And the really tricky thing is that they're meant to stay looking straight ahead. They're not meant to be looking at these lights that are flashing off in their peripheral visual field. And people find there's quite a lot of anxiety the first time they do it. So just let them know, look, it's not going to be perfect the first time you do it. That's completely fine. We anticipate that you're going to have a learning time with this um, and just do your best and try as much as possible to focus, you know, towards the centre. I mean, we may well be seeing a lot more of these patients, you know, because there has been a lot of varied promotion of hydroxychloroquine, um, you know, with limited backing. And so I think it's something that, you know, we all need to be aware of. And also, it's quite nice to be able to have, you know, if patients are coming in requesting this drug because of concerns about coronavirus, it's really good to be able to have a really decent discussion about the pros and cons of this. And some of the cons do include the risk of eye problems. And that might, you know, dissuade some people who are very, you know, keen initially, um, you know, that you do have these complications of the medication. All right. So moving on to our final topic for today, herpes zoster ophthalmicus. Tell us how a patient will present with this infection. I think everyone you know who's listening will have seen a lot of uh, of shingles. So the initial presentation is that kind of for herpes zoster ophthalmicus is that classic blistering rash within the V1 distribution. It's important that it doesn't uh, cross the midline um, and that you know it's extending right through you know to the back of the scalp. And you often get nasal ciliary involvement, so you get involvement of the nose, and that 
if you've got nasociliary involvement, it increases the chance of eye involvement. You do see a lot of variation, of course, with this presentation. And so sometimes people will just present with a little bit of redness or burning feeling over their uh, forehead and the blistering rash won't come through till a couple of days later and you'll kind of finely twig. Occasionally, it can even look almost a little bit like cellulitis. You can just get a little patch of redness, but then, you know, the rash comes a bit further down the track. So it can catch you out and you've kind of got to really listen you know to the patients and listen for those words that you know the burning feeling or the fact that it hurts when you just lightly stroke against it the hyperalgesia you know to be aware of it so that you can get that treatment started early for them and red flags here rachel please when we examine these patients, the things we're looking for to start with are, you know, they often get vesicles on the eyelid, they often get conjunctivitis, and you may see pseudodendrites with those. But all of those are relatively harmless, you know, in the short term. They're not things that are going to cause them to really drop their vision. The things that do cause them to drop the vision and do need them to have more treatment are the uveitis, so inflammation within the eye, and also the discoform keratitis, where um, they get swelling of their cornea and inflammation, you know, the deeper layers of the cornea. Those normally occur around the 7 to 10 day point. So anyone who kind of has a red eye in association with this needs a check at the 7 to 10 day because particularly with the uveitis, the cells are incredibly difficult to see unless you're really trained to do so. Um, and so it's just really easy to miss. The things that um, the patient might be saying to you that you know would prompt you doing something earlier would be if they said they've got a drop in their vision then we'd like to see them. And if they've got photophobia, because if they're sensitive to bright light, that can be an early sign that they've developed uveitis, that they've developed inflammation in their eye. I'll just add another couple of things. So there are lots of weird things that can happen with herpes zoster ophthalmicus. And we looked at a large series, we looked at 869 patients within Auckland with this disease. And we found Three and a half percent of them got cranial nerve palsies as well, so it's not at all uncommon for that to happen. Um, usually third and sixth, but it can be fourth, and they can also get a seventh, you know, with it as well. And so just be aware that that can happen. And I like to just check for double vision, you know, because it's one in thirty, you know, cases. I like to ask people about double vision when we when I see them. The other thing is that they can get optic nerve involvement, and so you know, one and a half percent of our patients developed optic nerve involvement due to the herpes zoster ophthalmicus. And the most common thing I'll say is just that colours look a bit washed out in that eye. Um, and that can just be a clue and checking what their colour vision is and checking what their pupil response is can kind of highlight up the fact that that more unusual complication has happened. Those are excellent practice points. Thanks, Rachel. I was going to ask you about what patients we can manage in the community, but I'm starting to feel a bit nervous about that now. So tell me about who we should be looking after and who we should refer earlier. I think that um, if there's no eye involvement, so maybe they've got vesicles on the lid, but there's no conjunctivitis, there's no photophobia, there's no drop in the vision, then I think that's pretty reasonable to just manage that in the community and not send them in. But personally, I have quite a low threshold for seeing them, you know, because that uveitis can really be, you know, fly under the radar a little bit. And um, I think it's really useful to diagnose that early. We've, within our uh, study, we found that one in 10 patients who presented with herpes zoster ophthalmicus lost vision in the long term. We followed them for about 10 years as a result of their eye inflammation. And uveitis was one of the 
the biggest risk factors for having that drop in vision, you know, and, and so drop in vision to say 6.15 or worse, we counted as, as a loss in vision. And that was a permanent one, not just from cataract or from inflammation. So one in 10 is quite high and, um, and we're very happy to see these, uh, these patients and just do a check for them. And just discussing the management for a moment, tell us about this. So I think it's really important to start the acyclovir early. And I mean, obviously, the initial studies were done for prompt acyclovir, so less than or equal to 72 hours. And so having that, um, you know, good index of suspicion that this could be, you know, herpes zoster ophthalmicus, even if it's not 100% typical and starting the treatment is really useful, that kind of decreases the crusting time for them. Interestingly, um, you can develop a stroke following herpes zoster ophthalmicus. And, you know, the rate of, of stroke is higher for all patients with shingles, but specifically with herpes zoster ophthalmicus, they seem to have an even higher rate again. And for our overall cohort, the, the rate of stroke following zoster in the first 12 months after was 2.2%. So, you know, more than a one in 50 chance within that group. And we've found that if you got early acyclovir, it actually had a much lower chance of developing that stroke afterwards. Usually that stroke's occurring around the two to four month point. So I really, really support getting that early acyclovir and making a way that those patients can access your clinic, you know, when they before that's five days, six days after the rash, because I know that we're all busy. We use, when the patients have, um, inflammation within their eye, whether that's the uveitis, so inflammation inside the eye, or whether that's corneal inflammation, so keratitis, we tend to use a lot of topical steroids. And the topical steroids that we use for these patients tend to be long-term. So I'd usually do a minimum of a three-month treatment course, you know, for the first instance. And even despite a three-month treatment course, I know that 50% of people who I stop the treatment on are going to reoccur. And so they often end up with, you know, a long, you know, course of it um, and sometimes it takes a few years uh, with it. There's a really interesting trial that's underway that Auckland's just signed up to be part of and that's the Zoster eye disease study and with that study what they're doing is they're looking at to see whether a prophylactic dose of valacyclovir carried on for a year after the initial diagnosis of herpes zoster ophthalmicus whether that decreases the complications of uh, shingles in the eye. And we know with herpes simplex that if you do prophylactic acyclovir, it halves the rate of recurrences. Um, but there's no similar study for zoster. And so um, I think we'll be starting to recruit people next month, but, uh, but we'll be trying to look to see whether that's beneficial as well. Just two more questions for you, Rachel. Um, you've mentioned higher incidence of stroke. So do we instantly put these people into a high risk category and start thinking about cardiovascular risk factors? It's a tricky question because I, the feeling with stroke and herpes zoster ophthalmicus is that it's probably secondary to a cerebral vasculitis. And that cerebral vasculitis tends to be occurring, as I said, around that two to four month point. And so I don't know whether, you know, putting them on a statin, putting them on aspirin, putting them on a blood thinner, you know, doing other things is actually going to benefit them in terms of a cerebral vasculitis mechanism because it's not your classic mechanism for stroke. So the evidence isn't there to say what you ought to do, you know, to start with. I think the main thing is to warn patients that this can occur. And I find that 
you know, when people come into the emergency department with their stroke two to four months following herpes zoster, a lot of people, because a lot of these are elderly, a lot of people don't think about herpes zoster as being the mechanism. And so they're not organizing, you know, a MRA looking for cerebral vasculitis, thinking about whether they need to put them on steroids and antivirals. Instead, they're just going through the standard stroke algorithm. And so just to have that kind of flag that, you know, that risk, and so that if you do get one of these patients and they come in and they do have that history of having a zoster recently, just think about different mechanisms that can cause your stroke because it's not always those bound door things. Excellent points here. Thank you. Now, you also mentioned steroids. And in this climate, any form of steroid or immunosuppressant is relatively worrying. And there's been lots of discussion on forums about the use of these. So what's your experience or what's the overseas data telling us about safety of these drugs in the current COVID-19 climate? For topical steroids, I think we're very safe. And we, that's, you know, the vast majority of what we use is going to be topical steroids. And the amount of systemic absorption is really tiny for those. The, the amount of dosing that we're using is tiny. We're giving the medication right to where it's needed. And so I think we can be really very safe in terms of that. Um, because I'm a uveitis consultant, I have a lot of patients who are on either prednisone or they're immunosuppressed. And so, you know, when the coronavirus you know, epidemic started, I was really following the news very closely because I wanted to know what advice I should be giving for my patients. The things that I found really quite reassuring were a series of two studies. So there was one that came out of one of the regions in Italy that was hardest hit with coronavirus right early on. And it came from the liver transplant group. And they found that their patients who were very highly immunosuppressed because they'd had liver transplants were not at any higher risk of being hospitalized or of any higher risk of dying from coronavirus than the rest of the population. And so that was quite nice to see. And then the second one that, again, was very reassuring was a study from New York who, again, were hit very early on uh, with this epidemic. And what they looked at were patients who were on a variety of immunosuppression uh, agents, including they looked specifically at biologics, so, you know, your anti-TNF agents. And they didn't find any increased, again, hospitalization, you know, severity of the disease or mortality within their study. It's obviously very limited. And I think, you know, we know in general people who are immunosuppressed are more likely to get, you know, diseases and they can get diseases quite badly. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of the very terrible consequences of coronavirus seem to be immune mediated. And we've seen, you know, that use of dexamethasone within the very sick patients and also tocilizumab for the, you know, the uh, very sick patients with uh, coronavirus. So it may be that, you know, it's not completely all doom and gloom in terms of the um, immunosuppression uh, agents. I'd still, you know, because these patients often have one, they're on the immunosuppression, two, you know, they may have other significant comorbidities. I'd still be advising them to, you know, to be careful with what they're doing, you know, to, to self-isolate and so on. But, um, but it looks a lot more promising than we thought at the start. Thank you for that. And to conclude our podcast today, Rachel, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please? So I think uh, it's really important to consider uh, COVID-19 and patients who are presenting with coronavirus and to make sure that our screening procedures are really robust because that's what's keeping us safe. I think you need to protect your eyes from splatters and droplets and so consider that anywhere where you're at risk. 
For hydroxychloroquine, um, a baseline screen is important for those patients. Identify patients who are at higher risk of developing complications, and then an annual screen from five years on protects the vision because we want to be detecting this before people end up losing vision as a result of it. And then finally, for uh, herpes zoster ophthalmicus, if there's any sign of eye involvement, then I really think that an eye screen at between seven to 10 days is really useful for them to pick up that onset of you know, uveitis um, and the discoform keratitis, which happens in about half um, of patients. And I'm going to add, flag the notes. Leg the notes with anyone who's had Zoster. Absolutely. So thank you, Rachel. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources that we've used in making this podcast. Thanks for listening.